0: Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. On this edition of the program, the case for and against God. Yes, we're going to settle the matter of God's existence once and for all right here on this show today. Or maybe not. But we are going to have a spirited discussion about spirituality and religion. We being me and Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein. She once counted herself among the faithful, but no longer. Now she's one of them secular humanists. She's also a philosopher and a novelist, and she brings both those vocations to bear on her latest book. It's called 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a Work of Fiction. If you like arguments, you're in luck. We've got a bunch of them. Rebecca, what is your religious background?
1: Um, Orthodox Jewish.
0: Were you devout at one time? Yes. Until when?
1: Until when did I believe? Until probably age 13. I was observant until both my parents passed away, and so well into my adulthood. Mm.
0: But what was the nature of the belief that uh, fell away for you?
1: That God exists.
0: You did believe it?
1: (laughs) Yes, I I believed that God exists, right, and that God wanted me to um, wait six hours between eating meat and milk and all of those things. Yes, I did believe that to be true.
0: What was your sense of God?
1: I was the daughter of a very saintly man. And I think I very much merged my ideas of God with my ideas of my father. I thought of him as, you know, a a spirit of utter kindness and Mm. generosity and compassion.
0: What changed such that you no longer believed then?
1: I was very interested in science, I, I should say. I mean, that was a passion. Um, physics, you know, and reading children's books about physics. And, you know, the first time I discovered, heard, learned about the atom, my little world was rocked. And it was something to do with that. Um, I, it, it seemed to me that the real answers were coming from those books I was reading. And so I would ask questions, and the answers were very unsatisfying. Also, my family had been decimated by the Holocaust, and my idea of God. Was based on my compassionate father, who would never let anybody suffer. I once went to—I once wanted to step on an ant, and my father gave me a beautiful story about why I shouldn't do that. And so, the notion—you know—the the combination of the books, and science that I was reading, together with the obscene amounts of, of suffering in the world—at uh, some point, I decided, oh, I, I get it. Mm. Um, it's, it's us, it's, it's, it's us in this world.
0: So let's cut to the recent past and, and your decision to write this book. Why bother if you've already lost whatever faith you had in God? Uh, you don't need any arguments for the existence of God. They're not going to convince you, are right. they?
1: Yes, they're not going to convince me. I'm always looking. <laughs> there are 36 arguments I, <laughs> I I set forth. I'm always waiting for the 37th one. I mean, I'm very, I'm inter- I'm interested in what's going on right now. Um, I'm interested that this question between you know faith and reason, religion, science, that is very much the bread and butter of philosophy, which is the field I went into is exploded into the public square, and there are these very public intellectual debates, uh, intellectual celebrities who have written atheist books and those who have written in response to them, and it's it's fascinating to me. I wanted to catch this moment Mm. where philosophy, these philosophical issues are being discussed as they haven't been in public since the Enlightenment. This is a fascinating thing that's happening. So yes, that's that was part of it. I also wanted to, I mean, everything's been reduced to very shallow, often discussions, very shrill, and and a lot of acrimony on each side. And I, 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 I just sort of wanted something slowed up, and I wanted a character who, although his intellectual integrity leads him to deny the existence of a transcendent God, um, is somewhat sympathetic or at least understands the complexity of the religious response.
0: Mm. So he, your character, and this is Cass Seltzer, a psychologist of religion who has become a celebrity, an intellectual celebrity, by virtue of a book about religion called The Varieties of Religious Illusion. We'll talk a little about his idea of religion in a moment. But he, in that book, has an appendix where he puts 36 arguments for the existence of God, and I assume he refutes them. You do the same.
1: Right. It's his, it's his appendix that I make the appendix of my book. That's really Cass Seltzer's
0: about. I see. Well, that's quite a disclaimer, so a lot of my questions go out the window. <laughs> but it's okay.
1: I, I basically agree with him.
0: <laughs> I sort of thought so. so. So what you do is you have his appendix at the end, which is where you lay out these 36 arguments that are collected from, really, from, from the history of debate over God, you know.
1: And a lot of them have never been formulated before. Oh, and some
0: new arguments yeah. that you've come up with. Um, and you, one by one, knock them down. Yeah. But the bulk of the book is a novel, and in fact the title is 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a work of fiction. You weave these arguments into the life story of this guy, Cass Seltzer, and his, other, and his friends and acquaintances.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Into their lived experience.
1: Yes. I mean, that seems to me something a novel can do, that this is about people's different orientation to the world at large and their experience of the world. It's also about, you know, the different... Sometimes it's the same experiences that they share, and Kaz is very given to spiritual experiences. Um, you know, I sort of take one through one of these mm-hmm. experiences, and that's a certain irony, and I have a great deal of fun with it, but but he does have these, you know, godless man that he is. He has a wide, expansive, spiritual uh Embrace of the universe, refusing to take the next step and saying that has anything to do with God. And I, I, I wanted to to take people through this. I also wanted to refute the view that I often hear that if you know, if you're an, you're an atheist, you're you know, you're, your view of the of, of of the world and the way you live it is very um, mechanistic and 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 uh, self-involved and. Uh, not large and expansive that's i know to be false i know that to be false and and i wanted to show that, that that was false i he has this appendix in his back of his book because he thinks that religion is about much more than the belief in god i mean his claim is that he could lay out in the best way possible all the ex- arguments for the existence of God that he could think of or that anybody has thought of and knock them down one by one. And it really won't make all that much difference Mm. to believers. Mm.
0: In fact, this this character, Cass Seltzer, says in the book, uh, when it comes to religion, arguments usually come after belief, not before. Far more potent than arguments are certain emotional attitudes that orient a person in the world rather than say something is true or false.
1: Yeah, I agree with him. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. yes. (laughs) So it's a kind of afterthought. You know, he thinks that these arguments are gestures toward rationality. Mm. They're kind of afterthoughts. Mm. And as an afterthought, he adds this appendix. And that's really what kicks him up into celebrityhood. Ah. You know, this kind of thing he just kind of... throws in. I mean, he's Mm. much more interested in describing the phenomenology of religion and trying to explain it. But it's really the appendix Mm. that gets people's attention.
0: Well, the appendix offers, for one thing, a really good set of talking points for anybody who's going to debate, you know, on the atheist side against a believer. And there are all these debates going on right now.
1: Exactly. My dear friend, um, Susan Jacoby, told me that she now takes, she, she's she got the little appendix and she takes it along as her crib sheet. And I also heard this amazing story a man wrote to me, I have ne- i don't know him, um, but he was on a an plane and edge.org had, um, before the book came out, quite a bit before the book came out, months before the book came out, had posted the appendix and a bit of the first chapter. So this man, who I think is a mathematician or a physicist. I know, somebody who would read edge.org. And he um, was on a long airplane ride and he was sitting next to a devout Muslim. And they started to talk about religion and the devout young man who was very, very intelligent and Egyptian um, started to give his reasons for why he believed. And this man said, well, let me show you something. And he pulled out, you know, called, pulled, put up the edge dot org posting of the appendix. And they started to work through it one by one. And he said, you know, and then finally he just sort of left the man and went back to his work. The man was going through it, you know, one by one, working through it. And he, and he said with a great deal of joy, and he asked me to send him two signed books, one for him and one for this
0: this ex-Muslim. M- the, perhaps ex-Muslim, <laughs> yes. Who knows? Um, well, I wanted to ask you, do you know of anybody who's ever had a conversion experience based on an argument?
1: You know, in some sense, I feel like I did a little bit, except I, conversion I was... Conversion away from Away belief. from belief. When I was questioning a lot, I I read Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian, a... Uh, a short article that goes through the standard arguments for God's existence: the ontological argument, cosmological oral argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument, and Russell, with that. The beautiful lucidity,
0: is that right? Mm-hmm. Lucidity, yes. He
1: <laughs> just knocks down those arguments. He shows exactly what's being presupposed, and you know what's shaky and what. What doesn't follow, and what, where the question begging is going on, and I just thought, I I, I remember how blown away I was, and uh, you know I was I was at the point probably of being converted away mm. from religion, mm. but that kind of clarity, mathematical clarity, uh, was was so compelling to me, and I, it was it was somehow you know it was. It was a beautiful. It was. It was a kind of ah. It was that wonderful feeling of confusion lifting. So, mm. yeah, maybe there's maybe you know I don't know if I'm unusual or not in mm. having had that experience. And maybe you have to have had a very religious upbringing and be very um, drawn, very drawn toward science and and math and clear thinking to to find something like Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian so moving.
0: What kind of um, faith is it that could be shaken by a logical argument, though? I mean, what kind of God, let's say, needs someone to argue his or her case?
1: Yeah. Well, I suppose if—I think we're always looking for grounds to substantiate our claims of what the world is like, and— I mean, to say, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's just, it's just a gut feeling. It's, 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 it's pure faith. I have absolutely nothing to go on here. I can offer you no reasons that would make my belief rational to you. I, I don't even think people who promote faith would go that far. It's always, there's always something that they, I think, feel that they can say that would make their claims about the world rational to somebody else. Hmm. Hmm. And and if you can go after that, I I, I don't think you're going to destroy f- the religious belief necessarily, because I, it's often coming from a very different source, from various emotional needs, and, and just something as I say, a very deep-down orientation toward reality also has a lot to do with community and group loyalty. I, I felt that very strongly as a child, and and, and so even though i reached these non-theistic beliefs quite early i stayed within the community i i felt great loyalty toward it and and great love to toward people who would be very hurt by my leaving this mm. community so it's 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 complicated but i i don't think it's so unusual for um one one to at least maybe Maybe it's, it doesn't really have to do, or it's, it's, it's unconnected with your real emotional needs, but to have something to say that would make it rational that you believe the world to be this way. That... Mm.
0: I've always thought it was probably a huge mistake for people who think of themselves as true believers to try to defend it in the cold light of rational argument. The thing is going to die on the operating table, you know, yeah. or on the lab bench.
1: Well, you know, maybe not a knockdown argument, you know, it's here's conclusive evidence that God exists, you know, it's, it's, but, you know, something or other, you know, some way of trying to make sense of this world or make sense of one's Mm. experience. I mean, Mm. something to be able to say, otherwise, what is it? I mean, God spoke to me or, or, and what else would you, I I just feel it. I mean, everybody Mm -hmm. knows. Gnosis, you know,
0: it's knowing. And knowing in a more direct way than through yeah, the, okay. the, the so, medium of science or observation so, or something. something like that you yeah. know
1: I've I've had this personal experience in, in which I was confronting a, a, a super empirical reality. Mm-hmm. If you haven't had that experience, you can't possibly mm-hmm. know what I saw. Then, yeah, I guess one one could say something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe to to me that because subjective experience is so clearly unreliable. Um, it just that never that kind of argument just never held any mm. appeal to me right, and I never understood how to, how it could for anybody
0: let's look at a couple of the arguments in the appendix, and uh then we'll look at the um the obverse uh, side of the book that is the experiential world of Cass Seltzer and Company mm. uh, and the way they experience religious states or he experiences some you know quasi religious states but a couple of arguments um I have a because we can't possibly make our way through all 36. I just sort of invented some broad categories for them. Um, I see some that are sort of quasi-scientific, you know, like uh, what caused the Big Bang Mm -hmm. must have been God, what Mm -hmm. created the universe must have been God, what designed these elegant uh, structures we see around us, the the creationist or or, uh, intelligent design argument, Uh, the fine-tuning of physical constants that physicists say had to be just so for the conditions to exist for life to evolve. And in fact, they are just so. Exactly. Uh, But all these things can be explained pretty easily by science as random chance or as natural selection Mm -hmm. or we don't know yet.
1: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Big surprise. Science hasn't reached the end.
0: (laughs) And then there there are arguments that I would call experiential one we just talked about. I felt it. I had a state of awareness that could have only been a communion with the supernatural or with God. Um, I feel you know, a sense of the sublime in my life, that sense of beauty, of transcendence, of awe, of grandeur that a lot of us feel. That's not logical. There's something else there. Um, The improbability of self, right? What makes me me? Why do I exist?
1: I mean, that's one that I can really uh, fall into, a state of Great confusion about. I can get as myself to As Cass did feel- when he was young. Yes, you yes. had
0: that state. Describe it for us.
1: Yeah, I gave Cass an experience that I used to have as a child, lying in bed. I have him lying in bed there mm. and thinking about the strangeness of being just this thing, and and what does it I mean? What is the connection between me and this particular thing? Could somebody from outside tell that I am? me and not my sister sleeping in the next bed over there and i would just somehow it was very very important this notion of could somebody outside i was trying to get at is there some ob- objective fact surely there's an objective fact that i am who i am but but, but what is that consistent and you can really work yourself into a state where you feel like you are no—I mean, you know—you're just kind of shot out outside of yourself. It was extremely exhilarating and terrifying. Um, and I remember, you know, pushing myself to the edge of it and wondering if I would ever get back in. And yes, I give that—I give that experience to to cast seltzer. And it is there is something completely paradoxical about it—a a complete account of all objective facts in the world would could it would it contain and and yes and I'm that one you see mm-hmm. that one that we mm-hmm. have a complete description of mm-hmm. I'm that mm-hmm. one it it's it's a very baffling notion and I does it get you to God at all no but there are a whole bunch of these things that completely overwhelm us and baffle our poor little finite brains it's not that that ultimate mystery God would make them any less mystifying, but God is big <laughs> enough to absorb all mysteries. And sort of a
0: deus ex machina. Just exactly, drop them in whenever you exactly.
1: need them. Exactly, yeah. ontol- or a great uh, ontological basket. you know, I mean, anything that we can get our minds around, just drop it into the mystery of God. And so there were a whole bunch of arguments, I think, of that sort. Mm-hmm.
0: There are some that um, strike me as just nothing more than sort of parlor games or sophistry. There's one called the ontological argument. Yes, which is it's, it's an old, you, a
1: classic argument. Do you have it
0: memorized, or shall I read it here? I think I know okay, it. Okay, let's yes. it. Yes,
1: so this is the only argument that starts with a concept of God and says if, if you, you know, if you if you define God in the right way, you can prove that that concept is realized. You know, and we make up all sorts of concepts, unicorns and. Um, you know, all sorts of things. I mean, novelists, that's all we do is make up uh, uh, figments of our imagination, and there's no claim that we can describe them, but we're not claiming that they exist. The ontological argument claims that there's a uniqueness condition for one concept, that than which nothing greater can be conceived. (laughs) Conceive of that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Then try to conceive of that as not existing. Well, you could conceive of it as being greater if you gave it existence. I mean, it's much better for it's a. a that's something that one would lack if one didn't exist. Uh, so, if you try to conceive of that than which nothing greater can be conceived as not existing, you're violating the terms of the concept. Therefore, that than which nothing greater can be conceived must exist
0: by definition. God exists
1: by definition. God exists,
0: and that's you know that's kind of a sad excuse for an argument.
1: Well, it's interesting because it has a very active history in the <laughs> in 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 uh, the history of western philosophy. A lot of the great especially the 17th century rationalists, Descartes, uh, Leibniz put forth versions of this this argument, the ontological argument. And it's interesting because I when I would run it by my undergraduates, you know, an intro to philosophy. Nobody's convinced by it. Everybody says that's sophistry. Mm. It's very hard to nail exactly what is going wrong there. And it was Immanuel Kant who nailed it mm. and said existence is being treated as a, as a property there, or something mm. that things can have and lose and lack. And, and that's a, a deep, logical fallacy. But,
0: but even aside from that, it's just a very loaded argument because the very definition of God is already uh, set out in such a way that you can easily demonstrate its existence in this kind of syllogism, you know? Exactly, so, yes. Yeah. Then there's a a really, um, what strikes me as a very cynical argument, which is uh, Pascal's Wager, uh, yeah. which is sort of a practical one. And we hear this all the time. Hey, uh, if you don't believe in God and there is one, you're in big trouble. Yeah. But if you do believe in God and there isn't one, hey, the worst that could happen to you is Chris Hitchens will make fun of you. I should say Christopher. <laughs> he doesn't go like Chris. <laughs> right? Right, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, then nuts. you'll miss out on
1: some... Really fun sense. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's yes. that's a
0: much bigger loss. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then there is uh, there's a there's sort of a, a really desperate argument. The argument from the abundance of arguments. Did you make that one? I up? I did make that one up. Yes,
1: of course. Yes. <laughs> if you, yes.
0: If you throw throw enough arguments at something, however flawed they may be, that the, the sheer weight of them will
1: <laughs> will win. I think so. But you know what? I think psychologically. That's often going on, mm, you know, in courtrooms too. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and I and I do remember, you know, I I do remember my my period of my life when I was uh, an annoying little kid asking people for their reasons for believing, and you know, they give me one after the other, and I kept thinking, you know, if they had one real good one, they
0: wouldn't mm. be coming up with mm. all these other ones.
1: And that struck me um, as that it was. For other people, it was very comforting that they could. Oh, you don't like that mm. one? I got. I mm. have another one. Here's another <laughs> one, kid. <laughs> and for me, it seemed you know quite the contrary. That was a, a measure of the weakness uh-huh. of these arguments.
0: The 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 food was terrible, and their and the servings were small. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, what is your favorite among? I, I know the answer to this. But, you know the answer yeah. to this? Yes, you do. <laughs> well, I know you're a Spinoza fan, so yes. so this question really is. Uh, is one that I know the answer to. But tell tell us about your favorite argument for the existence of God among these 36.
1: Number 35, uh, which is the argument for Spinoza's God. Spinoza was a uh, 17th century uber-rationalist philosopher. He thought everything could be do, deduced through pure reason and through the kind of what philosophers call a priori reason, through proofs, the kind of things you get in geometry in Euclid. In fact, he used the Euclidean model.
0: No observation necessary. No observation necessary. Just sit there necessary. in the dark and think it through. And you
1: could think it through, and you could come... <laughs> the, the amazing thing about Spinoza is he got so much right. Mm. It's really extraordinary. Uh, but he had wonderful intuitions. I mean, his his methodology is absurd, but he had wonderful intuitions. And But he, the basic premise he had, and it was one that was um, also presupposed by... Leibniz, who was uh, another great 17th century uh, rationalist and mathematician, was that the world has explanations running through it all the way down. You know, that that old joke about with the turtles, you know, the world rests on a turtle. And so the question is, what does that turtle rest on another turtle? So what is that? And then the person, the turtle ontologist finally says, it's turtles all the way down. Right. (laughs) For Spinoza, it's explanations all the way down. The world is thoroughly intelligible, not meaning that we can understand it, because the explanations are are infinite, and but and, and our minds are finite. But there are, there are no brute contingencies. It's there's every every fact does have a logical explanation. Um, I find that an appealing view. I find it an, a little bit an, an affront. To reason that there are certain things that are just true, they just happen to be. They're true, and there's you. You can't ask why they're just. It's just a brute fact. I find I don't like that, but I mean that may be true. Once you give Spinoza that premise, then you can get his notion of of God, which is that, which is basically the final theory of everything. There is, you know, if you if you understood. the fundamental laws of physics and you understood the theory that explain why they were the fundamental laws of physics, it would be a self-sufficient explanation. It would explain everything and it would make the world completely intelligible. We can never see this, but that that explanation ideally exists. Um, and that final theory of everything is worthy of our wonder and our awe and is might as well be thought of as God.
0: I think it might as well be thought of as God because it is completely mystical—an explanation that needs no further explanation. Yeah. It, what would be an example of that? Make one up for me. That's that. that well, needs you know, no in mathematics,
1: guess, you know, math, we sort of get—you know—math. We can we can axiomatize. That's right. And the, but and the axioms are themselves, um, or if you or, or think about it, before we had non Euclidean geometry. Exactly. think about there were the five axioms, and they were so obvious they were so intuitive um Ah. and so they didn't call for any further explanations they were self-explanatory and and once you got that you could deduce everything else so Mm. it's it's that kind of model of explanation the kind of thing you get in mathematics especially mathematics as as it existed in the 17th century Mm. before the discovery uh,
0: and then you know non-euclidean geometry yeah and the fact yeah 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 and that I mean, the very notion of an axiom, a self-evident truth—you need go no further. Exactly. It's the bottommost turtle. Uh, exactly, it's the thing on which the bottommost turtle is standing. Exactly, uh, and it
1: explains itself. To, un- to to understand it is to know that it's true.
0: But you like that? I love it. You love it, but you don't believe it. Not really. Mm.
1: But it's it, it calls to me. <laughs> it calls. To me. Now the thing about that number thirty-five, the argument for Spinoza's God is. If it's even possible, it invalidates all the other arguments for God's existence because all of those other arguments say there's something about the world that cause calls for something outside the world mm. to explain it. Mm-hmm. There's it has to be something transcendent that mm-hmm. would explain all of the other arguments. Work that way, and what Spinoza's conception is: No, if we if we had minds enough to understand, we would see that the world. Explains itself. That's that's really the only thing that makes sense. He mm. claims, if that's even possible, it's a way. It's a short way of invalidating all the other arguments, and which is why Spinoza was denounced as the most dangerous atheist um, of his day. And well, well into the age of Enlightenment, he was. It was almost a requirement to become a an academic that you had your reasons. To, of, 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 of showing how Spinoza was wrong. He was considered uh-huh. so dangerous. Hmm.
0: So, as we promised, uh, after going through some of these arguments that you lay out and that your character Cass Seltzer lays out in his appendix, you lay out and uh, you copy from him and put it in your appendix, um, we're going to talk more about religious experience through Cass's eyes. Um, and you say he sees religious frames of mind lurking everywhere, masking themselves in the most secular of settings in politics and scholarship and art and even in personal relationships, which pretty much sums up (laughs) what happens to him in this novel in in a general sense. Yes. Um, And we find him practicing or at least dipping his toes into various forms of of belief and faith. Um, One of the earliest in his own personal history is his graduate studies. Yes. Under a character named...
1: Jonas Elijah Clapper, who is the extreme distinguished professor of faith, literature, and values at um, the That's... Frankfurter University in Wheaton Massachusetts, not far from Harvard <laughs> University. And uh, Frankfurter uni- University had to uh, make up this title of, ex- you know, there are distinguished professors, but extreme distinguished professor to lure him away from Columbia University. And they had very much wanted to attract a you know a, a, a big name to put mm. them back on the map, and he is a department of one, which is very good because he can't. he his ego is such that he can't get along with any colleagues. Mm. So so there he is, mm. and he is he is a type of academic, and and not only in academia, but you do find them in academia. Type I have known in uh,
0: humanities departments, especially, especially the humanities, yeah. but
1: not restricted to the humanities, but this kind of self-mythologizing grandiosity that can come on a person who spends his or her life, because there are female clappers, his or her life speaking exclusively to undergraduates and captive graduate students and this kind of, um, you know, uh, just delusions of grandeur that can result.
0: There is this um, tradition uh, in you know among the, the some of the most famous names in the humanities of a kind of prophetic performance exactly. right messianic almost exactly exactly uh, this character of course has great echoes of Harold Bloom the professor of humanities at Yale literary mm-hmm. critic yes um, i
1: think i think that's that might be true <laughs> George Steiner, I've heard, um, uh, and, 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 and there are There people, are many others. There are many others. Yeah. Some, one review called him the love child of Harold Bloom and Gene Brody from The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, oh, you know, who was That hadn't s- occurred to me. Me neither, but I liked it.
0: <laughs> I thought of the great literary critics uh, who go way beyond their brief as literary critics and often become these you know these sort of oracular presences exactly. who pace the floor in the lecture hall and utter you know these mysterious and seemingly potent phrases you yes. know and around them are acolytes and disciples just like Cass is toward his yes his desperately professor. trying yeah. to
1: assimilate what it is that the the these these people are saying and and my character clapper goes through something called, he, I think he named it, or maybe the graduate students had named it uh, paradox shifts, you know, paradigm shifts. You know, mm-hmm. we've been it's such a cliche, but so these are paradox shifts. And, you know, he embraces paradox. He never tries to. And the, <laughs> the more paradoxical, the better, but they'll shift. And and the poor graduate students are scrambling desperately to keep up with him and to make sense of it. And there's there's something, there's something similar to what Occurs in religious communities with these charismatic leaders, mm. um, and so, and and that was something I, I really wanted to bring out that these impulses are not confined to uh, religious contexts. And if we make fun of them in in religious uh, religious communities, we should look to our own communities mm. as well.
0: Well, you've got you've gone you know head on up against your own community, the academic community, and and. And rooted out, you know, a semi-religious impulse in the worship of these great magisterial intellects and geniuses. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I think. Did you ever worship anybody like that? Did you ever fall in thrall to anybody like that?
1: Um. There are people. No, I've. I was never in thrall with anybody. There were people. Not when your I
0: was, uh, dissertation. No. I mean, who was advisor? Tom Nagel? Tom Nagel, very uh, famous philosopher. Uh, very, and, and
1: and I think you know first rate mm-hmm. philosopher. Um, he was a wonderful philosopher. With whom to work, his great philosophical mind, um, but uh, no, I mean he holds all sorts of views, especially now <laughs> that I, uh, you know, I I disagree with, and you know, and and at that, and at that time, no, there was never that. I'm I'm weary of that, and maybe having fought my way clear of Orthodox Judaism, I, I I'm I'm. I'm on the alert mm. uh for these sorts of things mm, and mm. I'm uh my tendency is to uh always be scouting out the absurdity in whatever mm. situation I'm in. Um maybe it's a defense mechanism.
0: <laughs> Your husband is Steven Pinker, the cognitive psychologist and um I would think that you know I think our audience uh, our listening audience probably has heard of him. He's very famous. He's written a number of large and influential books. He must attract some of that Mystique. I'm not saying that he wants it. I'm just saying some people must treat him that way.
1: Well, this notion of the intellectual celebrity—that I have Mm. my cast seltzer become an intellectual um, celebrity—you know—is something that I've been able to observe from from up close. Uh, Steve is—he is—he is is an intellectual celebrity, and at one point, um, cast seltzer has a young woman come up and say to him, do you sign body parts? And he's terrifically embarrassed. And she, you know, lifts up her sleeve. she wants the arm sign. Well, I witnessed that. I was sitting next to <laughs> Steve on the tee going from Cambridge to Boston, and a young woman came up. You know, are you, are you, are you Steve Pinker? Do you sign body parts? And the man looked like he was going to. terribly embarrassed, but you know, he signed. So this phenomenon is something you know that I've noticed. Steve has no tendencies toward self-mythologizing mm. grandiosity, mm. none at all, much like my Cass mm. Seltzer.
0: Now, Cass outgrows this devotion to Clapper, <laughs> his dissertation advisor um, and guru, um, who turns out to be a real buffoon, uh, uh, <laughs> in short order, um, a man of vast erudition, but yes. doesn't know what to do with it and just finds significations just everywhere. He's
1: so in love with the sound of his own voice and whatever <laughs> occurs to him. And he does have a capacious memory. The man really, you know, he remembers mm-hmm. a lot of stuff.
0: Which is said of Harold Bloom also. That well, yeah, he's yeah, read I've everything heard. and remembers everything uh, yes, he's read.
1: Yes, but, you know, there is a complete, in my character at least, I mean, there is complete in a sense of what a logical argument <laughs> looks like what it is to go from <laughs> one step to the other it's a kind of free association and argument by quotation mm-hmm. uh that that i that i have a lot of fun with um and and yes then he uh the, the messianic tendencies uh begin to intensify mm-hmm. in my character until he's uh well, I don't want to give it away, but right. but things happen. We yes. won't give things everything happen.
0: away. But um, <clears throat> Cass, though he sort of outgrows this uh, this infatuation or enchantment with uh, Jonas Elijah Clapper, does meet a genuine genius. Yes, uh, in the course of the story. Yes,
1: and I am, <clears throat> I you know I'm I'm fascinated by genuine genius, especially as it occurs in mathematics. To me, this is a wondrous thing um, that there are minds who can discover these extraordinarily beautiful proofs. And, and the fact that in math, like as in music, um, it can occur at a very early age, because mathematics really is pure reason. You really don't have to know about the world. It really is pure deduction. And so you can have you know, genuine prodigies, you know children, uh, who who just utter astonishing things. Have you met a few? No, I haven't. I read a great deal about, I mean, always. I've always read. So there's this wonderful book by E.T. Bell called um, Men of Mathematics. And it was one of my favorite books when I was in that period of exploration, of mm-hmm. fevered exploration, mm-hmm. trying to uh, make sense out of the religious answers i was getting and the questions that i was asking um and i remember being very taken with the account of gauss who was the prince of mathematicians mm, carl so, friedrich gauss exactly yeah. a, a great you know probably the greatest mathematician ever lived and it emerged in him you know at like age 2 or 3 nobody even remembers how how he learned his numbers Uh, But there is a story, you know, he's, his father was a a kind of um, custodian for an estate. And he was sitting on a stool while his father was adding up a long uh, column of, of numbers. And he's this little cherubic boy, I picture him in any case. And he just says, there's a mistake. You know, and his father—nobody mm. d- even remembered having taught him how <laughs> what a number was—and there was a mistake. Mm. And there are just these stories that are—they're—they're the they're, they're kind of almost otherworldly. And, and actually, in Bell, I remember this verbatim. He said, "You know, people who watched his development described it as something otherworldly." Mm.
0: And this is one of your arguments for God. Yes, the, the argument, argument from, from genius, from
1: prodigious genius, from prodigious yes.
0: genius. I mean, there's a feeling that. This knowledge uh, can't possibly have a rational explanation. It must be received. It must be revealed wisdom or something like that. Right.
1: And our, excuse me. You know, we made progress by being pulled along by by these great minds. You know, who have uh, this is a very retro Mm. um, view, and um, feminists hate it. And you know, I've I've been attacked for saying this. Nevertheless, I do believe it to be true that we've made progress from, you know, because of these great minds that have, uh, you know, pulled us along and we we catch up. We understand finally uh, what it was that they were saying. And it's almost like revelation. They reveal Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there is a, once again, there's a mystery there. We can't answer it. Uh, We know very little about the human mind. We can't even explain consciousness. Um, So it's not so surprising to me we can't explain genius. Mm. We don't know where Mm. these intuitions are coming from. Mm. All of us have intuitions. We don't know where they're coming from. Um, And once again, to sort of bury this mystery in God seems to cast seltzer and Mm. and to his creator a mistake. Um, Always, you know, to to use God to plug up the gaps in our explanation when, well, you know, obviously, I mean, who are we to be able to explain? To me, it's amazing we know anything at all.
0: Right. I mean, we're all geniuses. I mean, kids acquiring language are doing something exactly astoundingly brilliant. Exactly. It just happens to be commonplace, so we don't think of it as genius. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And there are, there are, there are, you know, as, as as Chomsky has shown, there is a deep structure. It's in part of our inheritance from evolution. Um we have these intuitions about what sounds grammatically right, what doesn't. There, it's following rules. We can't we can't articulate the rules. We actually consciously don't know them, but they lie deep there in the structure of, of the human brain. So, geniuses have more of that mm, hidden <laughs> structure, mm, you know. And so, it, it mm. you know more pops up in their intuitions. So it, it seems to me, you know, that even there we're gaining on being able to offer an explanation for, for, for this, this, these kinds of uh, astounding intuitions. Um, so yes, but, but nevertheless, here is this child who is uh who's a wondrous creature to Cass. Cass says that this character is, will always represent to him the place where our universe touches the extraordinary. And, you know, I, I feel like that as well. It,
0: yeah, I mean, as as rational and as atheistic is that the right word for you? Yes. As you are, you still acknowledge a sense of wonder and uh and awe in contemplating the universe and its inhabitants.
1: How can one not? I mm. mean, to observe this universe and to know something about it. I mean, to me the all, real awe comes from getting some explanation. So so you know the laws of of physics or, or that most beautiful theory. The theory of evolution, Darwinian evolution—you know, this being able to see why things are the way they are through these purely natural processes—and uh, and, and we and we can trace them, we can explain them—that to me causes tremendous awe and 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 and, and wonderment.
0: Mm. Well, when you feel that uh, that thrill, that thrill itself is not rational;
1: it's emotional. The thrill Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. emotional. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: One of the things that my favorite philosopher Spinoza said, and it was an intuition that's being borne out now by advances in neuroscience, is that the intellect and the emotions, cognition and passion, are not as separate as we have thought of them in in the history of of Western Mm. philosophy and science. That... um, to see a beautiful proof, or you know, to get a beautiful, ex- to get an explanation, a totally sa- intellectually satisfying explanation, is a deeply pleasurable feeling. And um, so that the, the the notion of this sterile, passionless intellect is not is really not true to the experience. Mm. I think that all people who devote themselves to thinking. Know the 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 exhilaration of 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 seeing something fall into place, getting a perfect explanation, seeing a perfect proof. I think we've all experienced this. It's the same thrill we get from you know hearing a a poem that that, that that's perfection, or or or, or a piece of music that that's perfection. So this is um, this aesthetic and emotional response to the intellectual. Is, is 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 part of our equipment. I don't know why, you know. I think there I'm sure there's a good evolutionary <laughs> explanation and I shall ask Stephen Pinker what it is, but 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 yes. Well, I think it it, it helps us to and it's very useful for us to be these knowledge seekers. The more we know about the world, the more we who are quite weak, uh, bodily weak, uh, can survive. The fact that knowledge gives us Pleasure in itself, I think, would have some kind of survival value hmm. itself. So maybe I've just spun off a, a little uh, a very simplistic evolutionary explanation.
0: Well, it's easy to do. I mean, evolution can be used in talk like this to explain yes. anything. Yeah, It's another thing to prove it or Absolutely. demonstrate how it could have happened. Yes. Um, but I want to ask you, while it's one thing to talk the talk of pure rationality, and one can do that, does anybody really walk the walk? I mean people who are the most rational beings you're going to find get up in the morning and go through their lives driven by a sense of purpose, by a sense of meaning of being special, of having a destiny Absolutely. of maybe achieving some sort of intellectual immortality. a lot of stuff yes. that strikes me as vaguely mystical,
1: yeah, or can't be substantiated it can't be can yeah. never be substantiated uh, yes, you know the the commitment one feels to one's own life, you know that. You know, exactly. try to talk yourself out of that, that it isn't of utmost importance that you survive and that you flourish. And, you know, that this or, or the commitment one feels to certain people in the world just because you happen to be their parent, right? Gosh. If you were going to be completely objective about it, why should, you know, why should I care more about the two young women who are my daughters?
0: So um, if you tell me that that's all a product of evolution, and mm-hmm. there's a good functional explanation for that, that does not undo the fact that that is how you live your life, how Precisely, you experience your life. Exactly. So what's the difference between you saying, oh, I'm just giddy because evolution has designed me that way, and someone else saying, oh, that's my experience of God or divinity, yeah. Well, is there a real difference there as long as they don't try to then take it and explain phys- physics and chemistry and evolution with some theoretical framework based on this idea of God.
1: Yeah. No, I I I I feel some I I I feel some sympathy for this this line of argument, but you know, when I say for example, you know that I am completely committed to my own Life and I, you know, I, I care more about myself surviving than you know about some random person. And I, you know, I un, I understand that that's because I'm me. That the, I, I understand there's some the subjectivity involved there. And I, I, I'm not asking anybody else to accept this claim about the world that Rebecca Goldstein has some special position <laughs> in you know in the cosmos you know and i'd be al- I'd be a loon if i did you know one sort of so one is driven by this but there's there's a way in which you you understand that your own particular position in the world compels you in this mm. way but you don't you would not ask anybody else to accept uh to accept this as a, as an objective claim so you never
0: turn it into a doctrine Exactly. And that may be where, at least by some people's lights, religion goes wrong. But in that sort of elemental inner feeling at the very bottom of things, that life is weird, it's mysterious, there really shouldn't be any reason for me to feel like there's a purpose or that there's any reason to get up in the morning at all, and yet I do. Could we call that a religious feeling? I mean, See, a, I, bit a bit of faith?
1: A bit of faith. I mean, we pursue our lives who else's life are we supposed to pursue? We're committed to this life, and you know we we want to garner the pleasures, and we want to avoid the pains because we're the ones mm. who are going to feel them. And you know that doesn't—that is, you know, when we live inside this particular life. But it is possible uh, to also think about the world as it exists objectively, and we—and there we have to offer i think some reasons for some Mm. claim that Mm. that aside from my position in the world um you know that i happen to be the person who i who i am um is there some reason to believe the universe is this way that there's something objective independent and objectivity is a beautiful notion and there i think you do have to offer some reasons and and just you know god i if somebody has a sort of mis- something that seems like a mystical encounter uh, and, you know, look, they, they confronted some reality and you had to be there and be them in order to, to know what this was like and to to know its truth, there's not much to say. I mean, there. Are, I, I don't know what to, to say in response to that. But all the other sorts of arguments where somebody is offering something that uh, is some kind of grounds that, is, that are accessible to another person so that we can assess those grounds, then I think, you know, the thing to do is to, uh, to assess them and see where they lead.
0: Well, you know, one of the, the, uh, the arguments in the appendix uh, for the existence of God that um, we didn't mention at all And uh, what you're saying is bringing it to mind for me right now is the argument from the hard problem of consciousness. Yes. Yes. Summarize that idea of the hard problem of consciousness.
1: So there are these facts about what it's like to be the particular thing that I am. There are facts right now about what it feels like to be me. And if you were to get a complete objective account of everything about my body uh I am my body after mm-hmm. all I believe that to be true my mind is my brain but if we were able to get a complete account of everything from the outside uh of of, of, of what this the states of this body what would we be able to derive from that would we be able to see from that these facts of subjectivity what it's like to be me what it feels like what the world feels like without asking me um And the hard problem of consciousness is the claim, look, we we haven't been able to do this yet. We've made tremendous advances in the brain sciences, um, and we can correlate, oh, when you stimulate this part, this person is having a mystical experience. Uh, Steve and I were supposed to um, actually have our brain imaged while we were shown the picture of one another so they could see which part <laughs> of our brain would light up, you know, when a per- people in love, right? So um, there, the, the experiment was faultily designed. Yeah, it so doesn't sound too good to me. So we, <laughs> it didn't go through. But um, <laughs> nevertheless, you know, they would have to ask us and you know are, what are you feeling now are you feeling love so that they would be mm-hmm. able to correlate that part mm-hmm. of the brain that's being lit up there that's in getting words, the blood flow
0: in other words if you're going to investigate those subjective states from the outside you're going to have to rely on the testimony of the subject Ex- him or herself exactly always uh, forever
1: well, and that and that's what it's there are good arguments to say what you've just said, that is forever, that, that that we're never going to be able to squeeze out that subjectivity from an objective a- account. That's the hard problem of consciousness.
0: Well, let me offer a—you know what I think might be a, a perfect analogy from a far less mysterious part of the body. Let's just say the knee. If I went to my orthopedist in pain and yeah. said, what's wrong with my knee? He took, takes an MRI, gets a really thorough image, looks at it, finds nothing wrong. You're not in pain. Well, that's a nonsensical statement. Exactly. And I can't imagine a diagnostic technology that would ever allow him to say, you're not in pain. Exactly. Yes. So why did I bring up this argument right now? Well, it seems to me that there might be a category error in talking objectively about subjectivity. Mm -hmm. It seems to me there might be a category error in talking empirically about religious feeling. Mm -hmm,
1: mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So that the two might coexist in different domains.
1: Yeah. So... I mean, in terms of the hard problem of consciousness, there is yet this intuition, a uh, sort of notion that, look, an objective account co- should be able to capture everything. Uh, mm. You know, an objective account is simply a account of how things are. Uh, and one of the facts about how things are is that I'm, you know, feeling an itch at my left Airlobe at the moment, right? Mm-hmm. So why can you know if we get a complete account of everything that is, why can't we get out of that this subjective fact?
0: I I sort of thought that, um, and you confided in me, I should say, before this interview because we were just chatting, um, that you believe that the hard problem of consciousness may never be solved. You yes. don't have proof of that. You don't have a a completely uh, open and shut case for that. But yes. you believe somehow there is something. There's some chasm that can't be crossed.
1: Yes, because and, I, I because I think of the way that science... Um, I think science is not a complete description of matter, um, actually. Mm. I mean, it's all that we have. It's amazing that we have it at all. Mm. I think, you know, with the 17th century that started, that's kind of stumbled on this, that you uh, combine empirical observation with mathematical description. This was such a new idea. And and lo and behold, we, we began to make progress. We began to be able to explain the ways of matter and, 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 and you know, qu- quite amazingly. Um, so that, that science has proceeded, technology has proceeded. Um, but I don't think that matter is completely Exhausted by this mathematical description. I think it's a, a, a purely structural description. That's why it can be captured in this mathematical language mm. and that there are these, uh, these other qualities of it that we can't get at. And the only no- way we know that they inhere in matter is because we are material things who have this subjective experience. So we know that matter is capable of this. Uh, but we're not learning of this through the same way that we learn that light is photons, you know, or that uh, mm. you know, the, the the structure of the atom. Uh, that that's we learn of because we we proceed through our mathematical sciences. But they're 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 they can only get at certain pro- properties. They can't get at everything. So unless we come up with a very different way of exploring the properties of matter, I think our consciousness. That final explanation of consciousness is going to elude us.
0: Oh, that's that's a a reason for the insolubility or the difficulty of the hard problem of consciousness that I've never heard before, huh? Um, you, you know, um, in the in the course of this conversation, um, you've been holding to uh, a rationalist atheist position pretty strongly, and I've been testing you a little bit with an idea of a, a synthesis or a coexistence of two states. Yes. You know, that uh, one might be um, a Buddhist in the winter and a nudist in the summer, or <laughs> or be secular in some settings yes. and um, religious in other settings. Yes, yes. And I must admit that I sort of thought you might hold that middle position because of what happens to one of your central characters in this book. We won't really reveal what happens to him or what character we're talking about, but he finds himself... Drawn to the secular world, but also held in a religious world yes. and and decides to sort of split the difference in an interesting way
1: yeah no i'm and i'm more torn than i've let on in this conversation, I think because you're pushing me so i 'm pushing the other way
0: ah.
1: uh, but um if you had giving giving me a very hard core atheist line, I'd probably be talking about uh, a little more sympathetically about the religious life. I mean, because I do, I, I, I I do feel the, the pull of both of them. One of the things, however, you know, again, that my character feels and that I feel is that there are many people who are living strongly, intensely religious life, whose views of the world whose ontology may not be very different from mine. There, that religion is extremely complicated and uh, it has a great staying power because it answers many needs, including the need for community—a uh, community of people whose values you can trust and with whom you can do good works. And this is uh, this is also loyalties, loyalties to particular narratives, uh, loyalties to um, a particular history, that you just happen through the contingencies of your life to be emotionally tied to, uh, the way I'm emotionally tied to my children, but don't ask anybody else to, to feel the way I do about them. Um, and, and, and all of this goes into uh, people's religiosity. And so it's uh, it, it it gets back once again to to the, the point we started with, which is that yes, here are these arguments. You can demonstrate the fallacies. How much difference is it going to make in the felt qualities of 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 a religious life for those to whom this answers a, a deep and satisfying need? I I, 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 for some, yes, it will make a big difference. For me, it did. For others, it won't. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's itself, I think, a self-deception to think that all of us care about logical consistency in the same way that, you know, some of us do. Mm, mm.
0: Well, let me offer you your own words uh, in that vein. And this is from um, a passage near the end of the book. And I'm going to um, eliminate a mention or two of a character so we don't give anything away. But you write, To be human is to inhabit our contradictions. Throwing a dot 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 there, and if so and so has never found the solution, then perhaps it is proof that no solution exists. That the most gifted among us is feeble in mind against the brutality of incomprehensibility that assaults us from all sides. Is that the real Rebecca Goldstein position?
1: I have to say it is. Yes. <laughs> yes.
0: Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Rebecca Goldstein. Her books include Properties of Light, Betraying Spinoza, Incompleteness, and the latest, which we discussed today, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We'll be back next week, Sunday at noon.